Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches us that we are to be perfect, just as God is perfect. But how on earth are we supposed to be perfect? Join us for the message, Law, Prophets, and Perfection. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Jesus teaches us that we're supposed to be perfect, just as God is perfect. But how on earth are we supposed to be perfect? Well, we'll examine that a little bit later on in our service. Chapter 5, beginning in the 17th verse. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A long time ago, a baby boy was born to a Jewish couple. The infant was born into a very troubled world. The Jewish people were living under the thumb of a brutal foreign power. The king was terrified about any possible rivals or threats to his power. And in his paranoia, he ordered the killing of every baby boy in the area. One of the baby boys born that year, however, was sent by God. His parents did everything they could think of to shield him from the king's power. While many other infants were killed, this child was spared. And he grew up to save his people and to reveal how God wanted the people to live and how he wanted them to thrive. Now, who am I talking about? Depends on which Bible book you're reading. If you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, the baby in question is Jesus. He's born of a Jewish couple, Mary and Joseph, in a world that is dominated by Rome. King Herod of Judea, who was in power uh, by the will of the Romans, was a violent and paranoid ruler. When confronted by the news that a new king of the Jews had been born, he ordered the slaughter of every baby boy under two years old uh, of age in and around Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph, however, were able to spirit the baby Jesus away to Egypt and to safety. Eventually, Jesus grew up to be the Savior of the world and to reveal to us how God wants us to live. But if you're reading the book of Exodus, you'll recognize the baby in question as the infant Moses. He also was born to a Jewish or a Hebrew couple who were slaves in Egypt and lived under the control of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Pharaoh felt threatened by the Hebrew people. So he ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill every infant boy that was born. Now, because the midwives refused to do this, the Hebrew boys survived, but they still needed to be hidden from the authorities. Moses' mother put him in a basket and hid the basket among the reeds of the Nile River. Here Moses was found by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses' life was spared, and he grew up to save the Hebrew people and deliver them from slavery and lead them out of the land of Egypt 
Moreover, he received the law from God while on Mount Sinai, and the law revealed how God wanted the Hebrew people to live. Well, Matthew wrote his gospel specifically for Jewish Christians. He was convinced that Jesus' life and ministry were a direct continuation of the revelation from God to the Jewish people that had begun centuries before in the lives of Abraham and in Moses. As the New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman puts it, in Matthew, the Jewish God sends a Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people in fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. Matthew deliberately arranges the details of Jesus' life, especially his birth, so that Jewish readers would easily notice the parallels between Moses and Jesus. Matthew was saying that Jesus was a continuation of the tradition that was started in Moses. Jesus not only continued this tradition, but brought it to its fulfillment, to its conclusion, to its completion. In a way, Jesus was the new Moses and offered the definitive interpretation of how God's law should be understood and lived out. Now, to further underline this parallel between Jesus and Moses, in his gospel, Matthew has arranged Jesus' teaching into five books or groupings of material throughout the gospel. With these five blocks of teaching, Matthew is drawing a parallel between the teachings of Jesus and the five books of law or the five books of the Torah. The Torah consists of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also known as the five books of Moses, or sometimes also the Pentateuch. The Sermon on the Mount, the subject of our current sermon series, is the first of these five blocks of teaching. And here Jesus lays out his moral vision and reveals the true meaning of Torah. Matthew even makes sure to tell us that Jesus went up on a mountain to deliver his sermon. Matthew's Jewish readers would have recognized this as a reference to the mountain that played such a huge part in the life of Moses, and that's Mount Sinai. Because it was on Mount Sinai that Moses first saw the burning bush and where he later received the Ten Commandments from God. So Moses received the Torah, or the law, on a mountain, and now Jesus is going to illuminate the true meaning of the Torah while he's on a mountain. So Jesus starts his sermon by saying, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus then fulfills the law. He finishes it. He brings it to, his, to its completion so that it can serve its intended purpose. Jesus fulfills the law by penetrating the Torah to reveal its divinely intended meaning. Jesus gives us the true meaning of Torah, and his, excuse me, his interpretation of Torah will be authoritative until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished. And he goes on to say, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, though many of the scribes and Pharisees were deeply sincere in their faith, and sometimes I think they get a bad rap, but they did have a reputation 
for being overly concerned with the outward appearance of righteousness. As long as you followed the law and all the rules, it didn't matter what was actually happening inside your heart. But Jesus said that the true meaning of Torah was to enable righteousness to abide inside of us, inside our hearts. Our hearts needed to be in the right place. If our hearts were filled with the love of God and neighbor, then the rules, all those do's and don'ts, would kind of take care of themselves. Inner righteousness then naturally leads to outer righteousness. Jesus then gives us six examples of what he means. And he begins each of these examples with the words, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now I could do an entire sermon series on just the next 28 verses alone because it tackles everything from anger to oaths to adultery. And in each case, Jesus is trying to get us beyond just external action and get us to look to our internal thoughts and emotions. He makes the law both easier and at the same time much, much harder. Jesus isn't very concerned about the minutia of the law the way some of the scribes and Pharisees were. So in that sense, he made the law easier to follow. But Jesus made the law much harder and considerably more idealistic because he insisted that our hearts and not just our actions should reflect the love of God and neighbor. From Matthew 5, beginning in the 21st verse. You have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I have never murdered anyone. I'm assuming that none of you have ever murdered anyone. But have you ever insulted anyone? I know I've called people a lot worse things than you fool. And it's usually when I'm behind the wheel. <laughs> in fact, I can say I did that just this morning, driving in. But I do want to be clear about something. Emotions are not sinful. Being angry is not, in and of itself, sinful. After all, if you read the Gospels, Jesus made some pretty intense outbursts of anger himself. Uh, just the, uh, the clearing, the driving out of the money changers is uh, the most prominent example. But I think there's no more important aspect of spiritual and emotional health and well-being, and I've said this many times, than the ability to be honest with oneself and with God. The more self-aware we are of our own emotions, and therefore the more honest we are then on our prayers, then the more wise and spiritually mature that we will become. 
when persons believe that anger in and of itself is a sin, then they have a tendency to repress that anger and to deny it even to themselves. They deny that they're angry because being angry is bad and I'm not a bad person, so therefore I cannot be angry. And anger, once it's shoved down and goes unacknowledged, can lodge deep in our hearts. It's like an infection that's in our hearts. And there it can fester and it can prevent that heart from loving fully. In extreme cases, it can push love out altogether, leaving nothing but bitterness and bile. Just a few weeks ago, the prolific author, uh, theologian, and Presbyterian minister Frederick Beekner passed away. Some of you may be familiar with his works. In one of his books, Wishful Thinking, a Theological ABC, he had this to say about unprocessed, unacknowledged anger. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last, last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. I remember when I was working at a previous ch uh, church, I was sitting in my office one Sunday morning in between services, and I had the door open, and there was a bench right outside my door. And a husband and wife had sat down on the bench and evidently had not noticed that the door was open and I was sitting in my office because the wife started pestering the husband and repeatedly asking him, why are you so angry? To which he repeatedly replied in an increasingly agitated tone, I'm not angry. <laughs> now maybe he had every reason to be angry, but for whatever reason he couldn't admit that he was angry. So that's gonna make it a lot harder than for he and his wife to um, work out their difficulties. He might be even feasting on his anger, but really all it's doing is eating him up. Anger itself, like, every, like any other emotion, however, is not sinful. What can be sinful is what we do with the emotion once it enters our hearts. And the writer of Ephesians tells us that, tells us that we can, quote, be angry, but do not sin. That certainly implies that we can be angry without it being sinful. But we do have a responsibility for what we do with that anger once it does enter our hearts. For one thing, first of all, we have a responsibility to be self-aware enough to know that we're angry. So then ask yourselves, do we harbor anger, rolling it over in our mind, letting it poison our feelings of compassion, mercy, or understanding? Do we let bitterness and resentment start to reside within us? Do we begin to think unkind and maybe even untrue things about those who have made us angry? Do we lash out with cutting words or maybe even a cutting fist? If we do those things, then we have a problem, and it's a problem that we then need to bring before God. Jesus even says, basically, that if, if you're on your way to church and you suddenly remember a conflict that you have with someone else, then turn the car around, go be reconciled then with your brother and sister, and then come and bring your gift before the altar.
starting with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. So this is where we get to the lust part of the sermon, which I know y'all been looking forward to. But we can approach lust much like we approach anger. Just as the emotion of anger in and of itself is not sinful, then sexual attraction is not in and of itself sinful. On the contrary, our sexuality is a good, natural, and normal part of human life. It is a gift that we have been given from God. But lust is something different from sexual attraction. Lust takes normal and natural sexual attraction and takes it a step further. Lust sees another person as a sex object whose primary purpose is to satisfy our own desire. Lust is selfish, exploitative, and dehumanizing. Fulfilling our lust then could never be called making love because love's got nothing to do with it. Not romantic love and certainly not the kind of love that God commands us to have for our neighbor. Lust can cut off our hearts from those to whom we are committed and it can lead to infidelity first in thought and then in action. Beginning with verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. And here's an even more dangerous passage to preach on. These verses about divorce are very hard to assimilate. Jesus' prohibition here has been used in the past to bind persons together in desperately unhappy and even abusive situations. Jesus taught an approach to Torah that argued against legalism, and I don't think he ever meant for his words about divorce to be used as a club to beat other people over the heads, of the heads of the divorced or the remarried. Nor that I think Jesus meant for people to keep themselves in a situation where they are being abused and mistreated. The way I interpret these verses... I think of divorce as not necessarily in and of itself a sin. Sometimes divorce is rather just the sad recognition that we all are sinners and that our sin has marred our marriages and our relationships. Divorce then recognizes the fact that we do, all of us, fail to love our neighbor, which can include our spouses as ourselves. And sometimes we can repair the relationship and, and sometimes we can't. 
But no matter what has happened in the past, however, we can, with God's help, go forward and learn to forgive and learn to let go. We can go forward and act lovingly and gracefully toward those who have wronged us. And because God forgives us, we can forgive others for all the ways that, for all the ways that we have sinned and failed and all the ways that others have sinned and failed. Jesus teaches us that it's not good enough that we just keep our word when we are sworn an oath. We should live with such integrity, with such loving honesty, that oaths are unnecessary. If we say we'll do something, we do it. And if we say something is true, it is true, at least to the best of our knowledge. Beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And again, this also means we don't set ourselves up for abuse so that we're never allowed to defend ourselves. It does mean that we should never settle for tit-for-tat retribution. Dealing with the evil actions of others as a Christian obligates us to find more creative and loving ways to handle our adversaries. I would say surprise your adversary with grace and kindness. If you can, diffuse the conflict with a loving action. Refuse to sink to the lowest level, but always take the high road when you deal with conflict. You may be surprised at how we can sometimes then turn our adversaries into friends. And if nothing else, by taking the high road in our conflicts and in our disagreements, at least we know, as sometimes they say in 12-step uh, groups, we've cleaned up our side of the street. From Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in the 17th verse. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but she, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. From Matthew chapter 5, beginning in the 43rd verse, you have heard it said that it, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." 
When we love our neighbors, we're loving people who are like us. When we love the alien, we're loving people that are not like us. When we love the enemy, we're loving people who are actively hostile to us. So Jesus here takes love to a whole new level. When I was in the fourth grade, my Sunday school teacher said something that has stayed with me my entire life, and it helped me to understand what Jesus meant. As a child, I felt guilty because there were some kids at school I didn't particularly like, yet I knew that Jesus commanded us to love one another. But my teacher said something very wise that stayed with me. She says, we don't have to like a person to love a person. You don't have to like them. You don't have to enjoy their company. You don't have to respect their life choices. To love someone means that even if you don't like them, you still treat them with kindness and respect. You try to understand where they're coming from. You pray for them. And your own actions and intentions will always be in the best interests of others so that we can love even when we do not like. And when we do love others, whether it is the neighbor, the alien, or the enemy, we fulfill the law. One of my favorite passages um, written by Paul is in the 13th chapter of Romans. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. In a way, it's simple. Whatever is loving is right and good and moral. And whatever is not loving is wrong and bad and immoral. No law, no rule that is not an expression of love is either legitimate nor is it binding. Love is the highest form of righteousness. In the end, it's really the only thing that matters. Jesus concludes his teaching on loving our enemies with this admonition, to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Now, it's hard to hear that last sentence and not react with at least some degree of despair. How are we supposed to live up to this impossible standard? How on earth are we supposed to be perfect? I know that many of us can be paralyzed by a compulsion to perfectionism. We feel like we have to be perfect to be lovable, or we must be perfect to be seen as competent. We may feel that perfection is a requirement before we can be accepted by God. Or we may expect perfection from others and are therefore always disappointed when the people in our lives don't live up to our expectations. But perfection in this sense this is not what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't mean by perfection that we never make a mistake. It doesn't mean that we're flawless. As John Wesley taught, perfection in this sense means that we are perfect in love, that our actions are motivated solely by love of God and love for our neighbors. In fact, the, the Greek word here, teleos, that's translated perfect, it can also be translated as whole or complete or mature. So that we can read this verse as, Be whole and complete and mature, just as your heavenly Father is whole and complete and mature. To be perfect in this way means that we're fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. That's to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world. 
and to reflect the image of God and to have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. So in a sense, it is an impossible standard, though not in the way we might normally think of perfectionism, because we are incapable of being perfect in love at all times, or to always be that perfect reflection of the image of God. So how do we live up to this impossible standard? How on earth can we be perfect? And frankly, it's only with God's help. There are some people who are next to impossible to love. And we probably have people like that in our lives. And sometimes the only way to love someone who is so unlovable is if we let God love them through us. In a few moments, we're going to be partaking of the sacrament of Holy Communion. I want you to think about something as you receive and, and consume the elements. And as you're consuming the elements, imagine the love and the light of God entering your body and filling you up and giving you the strength and the power to see and love others as God sees and loves them. And then imagine the love of God uh, that God has for you, even in all of your flaws and your mistakes and your imperfections. Because when we're filled with God's love, then loving our neighbors and loving the alien and loving our enemies, and yes, even loving ourselves, becomes a divine possibility. Amen. And now with all this confidence now that we have as the children of God, let's pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Remember that you can always find a recording of our worship service on our Facebook page, on our website, tumcd.org, and the audio is available on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Continue to pray for Trinity. Continue to thank God for three things every day and receive this benediction. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies and pray for them. And then let the love of God envelop you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series based on the Sermon on the Mount found in the Gospel of Matthew. You'll find audio recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we're now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.